0: When we look at liability, we ask, where does that liability occur? Is it occurring with the property, such as you have a fire in the property and now somebody's injured and they're going to sue the owner? Or is it something on the outside? Maybe you're driving down the street or your kid's driving the car and is involved in an accident because they clip a bicyclist and now they're suing you. It's determining where the liability originates.
1: What's going on, everybody? Welcome to the Real Estate Investing Fast Track. I'm your host, Greg Helbeck. And on this podcast, you are going to learn exactly how to be a successful real estate investor step-by-step by me interviewing some of the top real estate investors and entrepreneurs in the entire country. And there's also going to be a bunch of episodes where I'm just going to individually talk about real estate deals that I've done that have been successful, some deals that haven't been successful. I'm going to talk about my weekly real estate investing lessons, stuff that I've learned from the trenches that you can learn for free on this podcast. So if you're looking to level up your game as a real estate investor or become a real estate investor, this is the podcast to listen to. So if you do get value from the show today, please do me a favor and leave us a review on whatever podcast platform you are listening on so we can get this message in front of more people. And without further ado, welcome to the show. All right, Clint, welcome to the podcast, my friend. I've been looking forward to this for a while now. Uh, big fan of your YouTube channel. I'm a client of Anderson. So, you know, all this stuff you and Toby put out is amazing. And I just consume it like a maniac. So I really came prepared for the show today, my friend. Hey, Greg, thanks for having me on. I'm looking forward to this. I think we're going to cover a lot of interesting material today that will help
0: out many investors when it comes to protecting themselves.
1: Absolutely. I'm looking forward to it. So before we get into that, Clint, how did you get involved in the world of real estate investing and being a, a very successful attorney?
0: Well, the real estate investing started with my father. He was the one that set the bug because he was an avid real estate investor. And he realized that by having a couple of kids that you can turn them into indentured servants and they can help grow your portfolio for you at a lower cost. So Mm -hmm. that was my foray. And you know, at the time when you're doing it, you don't realize where that's going to lead to because you saw it as a burden when you're younger and you're having to go out there and work on the weekends. But as I saw what real estate did for my family, When I would come back from college and I saw my parents, you know, buying a new car, remodeling the kitchen, those are things we never did growing up, but now they have that cash that was coming in because their investments had matured and they're generating revenue from it. I started to see the light and I understood the importance of it. And I was always told, hey, this is paying for your college education. This is why we're doing this. Yeah. And so then I thought that, you know, law school was a natural fit for me, given the fact my grandfather was an attorney. And I just really liked the idea of being an attorney. I'd sit, you know, go into his office. And he had this dark office and all these books behind him, big chair and sit there and, you know, go out at noon, get a drink and come back and go play golf and make good money doing it. I thought, oh, that's what I want to do. So I went to law school. Once I got out of law school, it, things just took a different path. I started working with people, investors, and right away, right out of law school, and I saw that there was an opportunity here, that people weren't getting the right type of information. Heck, my dad wasn't getting the right information from his father, who was the attorney I was describing. Never set him up with the right structures. And so seeing this, I realized that attorneys do not look at problems the same way that investors do. They don't recognize it. And so what I wanted to do is help people put together the right structures, and not only do the structures the right way, Make sure that they're not going to get killed in taxes. So when we built Anderson, we formed it with that principle in mind, asset protection, tax planning. And then as it progressed, and in my own real estate investing started to progress, I realized, hey, there's another side, and that's called the business planning side. That, you know, when you're looking at things and you're working with a professional, that professional should understand how to set up the right identity, what it's going to do for you from a legals perspective, how it can benefit you from a tax perspective. But more importantly, help you grow. Because I've seen people put together structures that when it comes to getting loans to close on a multifamily deal, when they're trying to scale up, they really box themselves in and they
1: can't do it. So that's what we look at here at Anderson. And that's what I love about you guys, because you guys are investors yourselves, right? That's the such a big thing that people need to look at, because I know a lot of people who get bad advice from their CPA who used to do their parents' tax return. And they really steer these people the wrong way. So when you're actually working with someone who's actually doing the business, you're able to get the right insight. So the first thing when I first discovered you, I think a guy I hired to help me coach rental properties pointed me to your book, Next Level Asset Protection. Mm-hmm. I read that whole thing last New Year's. And the biggest thing that I realized with the rental business, I've been in that business now for a while, there's a lot of liability. It's a risky asset, as you would call it, because there's tenants and toilets and things that can go wrong versus a stock account. It's a different type of investment, right? So let's talk about how should somebody set up a rental property to where the objective is really to make a plaintiff's attorney want to go away because of the way it's set up right? That's probably the best way I could ask that question. Because there's a way to do that, that you teach that is is really brilliant. Yeah. So if you're just thinking about the property
0: itself, and when we look at liability, we ask, where does that liability occur? Is it occurring with the property, such as you have a fire in the property and now somebody's injured and they're going to to sue the owner? Or is it something on the outside? Maybe you're driving down the street or your kid's driving the car and is involved in an accident because they clip a bicyclist and now they're suing you. So Mm. when we're thinking about liability, It's determining where the liability originates. Does it originate with the property or outside of the entity that's gonna hold the property? Because there's different strategies that we look at when it comes to protecting against a risk. And so I'll break it down for you as far as, say that the claim, the harm, has originated with the property itself. For example, not too long ago, a client owned a vacant lot in a development, was planning to build a spec on it and then flip it. A couple of kids are riding around on that vacant lot with four-wheelers and they got in an accident, severely injured, turn around and sue the guy. And, you know, in our society nowadays, you know, when I was a kid growing up, if I got in an accident with a four-wheeler on a vacant lot, there's no suing. There was, you know, getting my ass spanked by my father for screwing up the four-wheeler. But now, you know, they go after and want to hold other people responsible. So you got this property there. Now, if I'm an attorney and I'm representing that client, and I know that I have a claim against the property owner. That is the LLC, the limited liability company, It was set up to compartmentalize that risk. So if I own an LLC and the harm originates with the assets that are in that LLC, then I, as the owner, should not have any responsibility for that claim. And so people say, well, great, they can't sue you. Yeah, but they can still take the property. So what we wanna do is we wanna make the property appear unattractive that, hey, don't bother even going after the property because the property is only valuable to a a plaintiff's attorney if there's equity there. Mm -hmm. Otherwise, they're just, yeah, they're just going to go after the policy limits. That's why you have an insurance policy to cover your assets in case something like this happens. So what I like to do in situations like that is that if you have an asset with a lot of equity and you want attorneys to Look at the asset and say, yeah, it's just not even worth trying to go after this asset because even if we win, we'll never collect because if it's sold, all the money gets paid to the lender. You create what's called a friendly lien to create this fiction that your property is over-encumbered. What you're doing essentially is you're filing a lien on yourself. So you set up another entity and you lien yourself. You say, yeah, I borrowed $500,000. From myself. And again, it's not your name, it's an LLC that you've set up. So you record this debt on your existing asset that shows that it owes another entity $500,000. So if someone looks at that property, they see that maybe there's a first with Wells Fargo and then there's a second with Greenpoint funding out of Wyoming and there's no equity. And they just say, let's go for the insurance. That's it. And that's what I want them to do. That's why I have the insurance. But if I showed that I had 500,000 equity, like, oh boy. We're getting policy limits plus <laughs> portion of that equity.
1: Yeah. And that is because the attorneys are a business, right? So if the plaintiff attorney, you know, is gonna get paid on contingency or whatever, and they know it's a tough road ahead and they see there's that friendly lien from XYZ funding corp, you know, they gotta look at their time and it's like, well, is this really worth going after if there's only 50 grand worth of net equity? You're setting yourself up, like you talk about in your videos a lot, to where you almost Force the attorney on the other side to want to settle for that insurance policy, which is why you have the insurance, obviously, or an umbrella policy. So that's a great strategy. And people need to really look in this because I have a friend, I will not mention his name, but he, I've been telling him to call you guys for months now. I said, dude, you have all this real eight figures worth of equity in your personal name and you run around like a cowboy all day. I said, dude, you got to get your shit set up. And I was telling him some of the risks and he didn't really want to talk about it because he was getting quiet at dinner. And I said, you got to call these guys. You got to have them set up your stuff because you have, you know, 40 tenants. All you need is one or two of those tenants to really go south to have your whole portfolio at risk because people don't think they're going to get sued until they get sued, right? Like, oh, that happened to me. Oh, there's no way, but there is a way. And it definitely occurs on a daily basis here in the States. So let me talk about another thing with the LLCs that I've heard you mention before. And this is something that I understand now, but it took me a while to figure it out. Let's say you and I own rental property in North Carolina, all right? And we want to, because I know in certain states, you have to disclose who the members or managers are of that LLC. And like in North Carolina, for example, you probably have to put some information down, right? But if you have a Wyoming LLC, you don't have to report who the members are in that scenario. So how would you use a Wyoming LLC to still own property in a state where like the property resides, but not have them know that you own it, if that's even possible? I know it's kind of a loaded question there. I apologize. No, 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 I get
0: it. So this goes to that second aspect, right? If you get sued personally and I want to discourage an attorney from coming after me looking to, you know, collect on a huge payday, I want them to take my policy limits and leave me alone. So this goes back, I think one client right off the top of my head, sat down with this couple, structured them out, at a number of businesses and a lot of real estate, probably a total asset value of around twenty million dollars, oh, and wow. they're in California. Holy, oh God! That's the worst part, I just right? Made that out of that place a couple months ago.
1: <laughs> <laughs> That's yes. a lot of people <laughs>
0: are. So they have these assets, and it, you know they appreciated the risk. And I said, well, here's what we need to do. We have to make you appear as if you're not worth going after. And the way I'm going to do that is I'm going to take all of your entities that now, you know, they show your name on them. If you look at the Secretary of State's website, you're listed as the member manager as you just described, or you got this real estate that's titled in your name Mm. and I'm going to make it disappear. I mean, you're going to disappear from the ownership records. You'll still own it, but you can't discover the fact that you own these assets. And so what we did in that scenario is we created a number of LLCs, say in Wyoming, to start with, that's the foundation. And the reason why you set it up in Wyoming is because Wyoming is one of a handful of states that does not collect any information on who's involved with an LLC. Doesn't ask you who the managers are, who the members are. You just, all you have to do is give them the name of the LLC, business address, and the registered agent. You're good to go. That's you man. brought up North Carolina. North Carolina, for instance, They don't ask you the first year who the members or managers are. So you can essentially do the exact same thing. But the second year, you have to disclose that. So I've had people say to me, well, I can get the same thing out of North Carolina. Yeah, you can for one year only, but you wanted this to be long-term. So you set this up in Wyoming. They never will ask for this information. So I have an LLC. My name's not attached to it. You don't know. Let's just call it Fuzzy Bunny LLC. We set it up. And then I set up state-specific LLCs For my client in California, we set up a number of California LLCs to be held by Fuzzy Bunny. And so when I say held by that, what I mean is that when I set up that California LLC and California asks on their articles of organization, is this a member or manager managed LLC? Meaning I have to disclose how that company is going to be structured internally, who's going to control it. I will answer Red Frog California LLC is a member managed LLC. And then California wants to know, all right, well, if it's going to be member managed, we need to know the names of each of the LLC's members. So the way we're structuring this deal is that Red Frog is owned 100% by Fuzzy Bunny. So on the actual statement of information for California, I list Fuzzy Bunny LLC. So now you've created an anonymous LLC in California. Meaning that if somebody looks at Red Frog because it happens to own a piece of real estate in San Diego and they're wondering who's the owner of this property, it points them back to Fuzzy Bunny. And so if they
1: look up Fuzzy Bunny, it points them it. to no one. Yes. Cause that is where people think, like, oh, well, you know, if you have a Wyoming LLC, it doesn't matter if the property, like I own a lot of property in New York, which is probably the worst state to own property in from a eviction standpoint, as I digress. You just make the Manager, the Wyoming LLC. And then all of a sudden, if they want to try to go and see who owns that, it's going to be very hard. Is there a a scenario, Clint, where if someone's in discovery in a lawsuit, would they ever have them disclose that they own that Wyoming LLC? Or Wyoming has those charging order protections where, like, basically they won't tell them anyone shit and it's just a standoff?
0: Well, so what happens there, and this is where people that, you know, they're not attorneys, they don't understand how a lawsuit works. If I sue you, And I depose you or I send a written interrogs to you to fill out. And I ask you, hey, who owns Fuzzy Bunny? You don't have to disclose that information. Yeah. It's none of their business who the owners are. Why don't you have to disclose it? Because it's not relevant. If you're asserting that I didn't adequately maintain the electrical system in this property. And as a result of the work that I did on my own, it caused this place to burn down. What does that have to do with the owner of the LLC? That's nothing. Zero. So when can they discover this information? Yeah. Well, if they get a judgment against you. Okay. Once they get a judgment against you, then they can bring you into a debtor's exam and they say, I sued you personally. Then I can ask you everything I need to know. So that cup, that individual in California, they were sued for $15 million individually. They came after him. Holy oh. shit. And honestly said... They walked away with policy limits and it worked out exactly as I described. And they were so ecstatic. They brought me out to one of their clubs one night and they said, listen, man, whatever you want, it's on me. What type of wine do you like? And they were bringing bottles of Opus out that were two, $3,000 a bottle. Oh yeah. Just because they wanted to express their gratitude because they were staring this down and everyone else was telling them, no, man, you're going to have to pay. You're going to have to pay. And I was the only person telling them, you're not going to have to pay. Don't listen to those individuals, okay? They're going to accept your policy limits because they don't know what you're worth and they can't discover that. And that's exactly what happened. And what what proved my point to this couple to drive it home even more is there was another defendant named in that lawsuit, not even culpable at all. All he did was own a building and, and that's where the harm occurred. Somebody was smashed up against the building. So they sued the building owner, Because they own a building, because it's California. That's probably why you left, because anybody gets sued there. Many reasons. (laughs) Yes. And so the building owner, he tries to settle for policy limits. And they looked at him. and they said, no, we did an asset search. We know what you're worth. You can pay. We're not accepting your policy limits. So unfortunately for him, the least culpable party, he had to pay. And they took his policy limits. And so, you know, I I hated to tell him, I said, look at, you know, because the person I'm referring to was his father. (laughs) Oh, God. I know. I said, your father got screwed here because your father didn't listen to what we'd, I'd actually had a conversation with him. I recommended he take certain steps to protect his assets. But, you know, there are people out there and my father has one of those where they look at setting up a structure. They see, you know, what is it going to do to me? What is the cost? And they don't see, look at it from the investment side. That is, what is it going to do for me? And so then they fail to take action. And then when this Something like I just described happens. They sit there and lament and cry and scream, and say it's not fair. Like, granted, life is not fair. And the legal no. system is not set up to protect you. It's set up to benefit these other attorneys over here. And at the end of the day, who do you got to blame?
1: Exactly. No, that's a great point. That's the thing I looked at. I became a client set some LLCs up with you guys. It's like, this is like, a, you know, a form of insurance almost to where, like, if you could set yourself up to where, you know especially once you start getting some assets cash equity you know other notes i have out with people and investments like it's like getting a, a trust set up or a will like you don't want to think about that because it's not pleasant to think about but when you get sued or whatever if you have your stuff set up like you just mentioned it's going to be a lot easier to you know sleep better at night because of the way you're set up so that's anyone listening to the show right now we have a lot of advanced people listening you got to really look into this stuff because you know, if you're doing a lot of volume, like before Clint and I you know, hit record, I was telling him about some of my war stories on and even a wholesale deal that went down the shitter. And you know, when you do volume, it's just a matter of time until you get sued. I have friends who've been sued up the wazoo, slip and falls, you name it. So you got to set the stuff up right from day one. Or if you haven't done it day one, you got to do it sooner rather than later. So let's flip up to another topic where you've mentioned I've never heard of this before until I discovered your video on it a lot of people love this concept of owner financing, installment sales, etc. It's when you buy a property, you sell it, you get a down payment, you take a note back. But if you're doing these installment sales, I had no idea this was even the case because the business model seemed too good to be true. You can really set yourself up to have a huge tax liability and really get yourself in trouble. So I'd like you to get into that for a minute because I I remember hearing this and I, I texted my friend who does a lot of installment sales and he never got back to me on that answer because he probably knows that's the flaw of the business model.
0: Yeah, and unfortunately, a lot of people end up in that scenario where they figure, hey, I only brought in X $3,000 up front and they're paying me $800 a month. So yeah. they, in their mind, they mentally do a calculation. My potential tax liability this year is going to be $6,000 because they have basis in the asset and they figured out you know what above that they collected. But unfortunately, for people who flip real estate, to buy and sell property. Your class- trade business,
1: right? Is that as a, a trader, trader business? Yes,
0: you're classified as a dealer because mm-hmm. property in your hands is considered to be inventory. Yes, and that is the number one problem I've run into time and time again with flippers that sell properties on installment sales. Besides complying with Dodd Frank,
1: <laughs> we
0: won't get into this, that. Yeah, <laughs> is <laughs> the fact that when they sell these deals that the sale itself is compressed down and all of your gain must be recognized in the year of sale, even though you've only received a fraction of it. And so what can happen is that, hey, maybe you sell a property in January on an installment sale, you've got 11 other months of runway there to collect money so you can potentially cover your full tax liability on the property. But if you sell it six in December, man, you've got really real problems there because you only brought in $8,000, but the IRS, you know, say each property had $50,000 in gain or $30,000 in gain. Whoa. It let will say you have $240,000 in gain this year. And you're like, whoa, I only brought in 24K. Yeah, yeah but you know, you're a dealer. So now you, you have to recognize this at your highest marginal tax rate. Well, not highest. You don't necessarily have to do that, but they're going to hit you at, whatever your tax rate is on 240, 240 grand, because that is considered to be active income to you, plus employment taxes. So you could be looking at potentially about $80,000 in taxes, but you only have $24,000 or $32,000 in your hand. And you're going, man, I got the raw deal here. So if you're flipping property on an installment sale, a couple of things I often tell you. Number one, consider using a C corporation. to flip. And the reason why I like C corporations, flat tax rate, of 21%. So now you know that, hey, you're only going to get taxed at 21%. You're not going to be hit with any employment taxes, of 15.4% because the dealer is the corporation, not you individually. Mm -hmm. So that that can help, number one. Number two, maybe you restructure your deals. Maybe you do lease options. So you enter into a lease with the option to purchase. Now you hold it for over a year. And then you convert that into an installment sale when you sell. So now you've held it for a year. And so it shows up on your 1040 Schedule E, page two or one, depending on how you're structured. And it's shown as an investment property. Mm
1: -hmm. That's the key. Yeah. So now you
0: sell it Yeah. and it's long-term capital gains. You can do your installment sale and it won't be compressed because it's not dealer property. And if those don't work for you, well, there's other
1: things we can talk about off a podcast like this. (laughs) That's where I see it's funny you mentioned that because I just bought a property two weeks ago. No, was it? Yeah, yeah, two weeks ago. And the owner financed me at 0% interest. We can get into that Mm on the podcast, which is juicy. Yeah. Uh, Yeah. But he owned that property for Jesus, 25 years. So clearly that was not inventory. That was an investment. So he's only going to pay taxes on, you know, the down payment and whatever. What he he received. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly right. And he was a mortgage broker, believe it or not he sold me a property, 0% interest. I know why now with the tenant, Clint, I understand exactly I why. Like yes, <laughs> no. We'll be having to remove her from the property soon, unfortunately. But anyway, that is where I see people make mistakes. Is, and that's another thing with flipping house. I've done a lot of house flips in my career. And I have another, the same friend, I don't want to keep bagging him, but he, he flips a lot of properties like me and he doesn't claim them as inventory. And I'm like, dude, You got to start doing this the right way because a lot of these flippers, they don't know this. They think they're just getting capital gains. And if you do, you know, five or 10 flips and your intention was to resell it, you know, that's inventory. That's an active trader business, like you said. And you're going to just be paying ordinary income tax on that. There's no capital gain scenario in that case, right?
0: Correct. Yeah. And the other thing too is, you know, what's the likelihood of being audited? So this is one of the reasons why- I I always think think about that. You're supposed to account and pay all your taxes. I'm just going to start with that. Yeah, yeah. I will finish with this. When you're thinking about business entities and what you're setting up, this is that business leg of what I was talking about at the very beginning, the three legs of the stool, asset protection, tax planning, business planning. That business planning side is where many people miss out on opportunities. For example, when you structure your flipping business as a corporation, you're reducing your risk of audit substantially because we have attorneys in our firm that you know, you know you're a platinum client, so you can call in and talk to attorneys.
1: That's amazing. Well, these ex
0: IRS attorneys have told me, and I've heard I've verified this because I've heard it many times that if you put 100 auditors in a room, about five of them are qualified to audit a corporation return or a partnership. 95 run around grabbing 1040s all day long, but yeah. at least five of them can do that. So, How do you want to run your business then if you don't want to be audited? You want to run your business as a corporation and you want to hold your assets through a partnership entity. You can set up an LLC, treat it as a partnership. So then, those deductions that you're claiming through those various businesses, and I'm not saying you should take any deduction you're not entitled to, but the problem is is that people that are not experienced, and I've dealt with this with the IRS myself before, if they're not experienced in what it is that you're doing, they think that you can't do it. And so, You have to then prove to them why you can. And that's just an exercise no one wants to go through because it's time consuming and it can be expensive. So just set yourself up so that you don't get audited or you reduce that down to such a small amount that you're a small fish in a large pond. There's LLCs and corporations making millions, hundreds of millions of dollars.
1: That's who they're interested in. They're going to go after the big boys. And yeah, like If you're flipping and you're not using a corporation, it's just, it's foolish. Oh my God. I flipped our business over to a corporation, I would say five years ago. And, you know, there's many benefits to it, but yeah, just the whole audit thing too. Like, you know, and I tell people, I'm like, obviously do the legal way. Like you don't have to cheat or whatever, but if you're set up the right way off the bat, you're just... Decreasing the odds of actually getting audited. And then, you know, they're like you said, they're going to go after the people who have hundreds of millions of dollars because that's where they can really collect, not the guy making, you know, a couple hundred grand or a million bucks. So very interesting stuff, Clint. I'm sure the listeners are going to be rewinding a lot of this episode. So as we start to wind the show down, one last topic that we actually spoke about before we hit record was the liability with wholesaling. We have a lot of wholesalers on this call, I'm sure. And they think they have this false belief in their brain that oh, if I can't find a buyer, well, you shouldn't be getting under contract if you can't close. But besides that, the only thing I'll lose is my deposit. And if I put $100 down, you know, that's my worst case scenario. And clearly that's not the case. I've had this happen to me, you know, on a deal that I shared with you. But what are some of the drawbacks and risks that a wholesaler can take if they don't close? Like what could actually happen besides them losing their deposit that could only be a couple hundred bucks? So,
0: you know, I flipped real estate. When I first started investing, I worked with wholesalers. That's how I acquired a good portion of the portfolio to begin with. And it always amazed me the way these guys were, were operating their businesses. Like corner deli. Yeah, that's exactly right. They didn't understand the liability because yeah. I know I get it. You're like, well, what's the likelihood of it happening to me? Well, it's just like saying, what's the likelihood of a door on a 737 max being blown off where you're at 16,000 feet? probably pretty small, but if you're the one sitting in that seat right so next to that not, door that just went out.
1: Yeah. Yeah.
0: So this is what happens. I was at an event and it was talking about, Hey, if you're a wholesaler, here's what you should be doing. And I think anybody who invests in real estate, you should follow this advice. Yeah. You set up an offer making entity. So we have an entity, my partner and I, we have an entity that we make all of our offers under. And so we always write up our offers under the name of the entity. So we'll say, X, Y, Z acquisitions and or designated entity. That's how I put in my offers. So I'm doing that so that the contract with the seller runs to that LLC. Sure. And I taught this at an event one time in this gal. She was just getting started and, and she's you know weighing whether or not she wanted to make that type of investment to set up an LLC. And she decided, ah, I can't be that risky. So she actually went out there and she put a couple of properties under contract. She had three properties under contract with the same seller. And actually these three, in her own name. Oh, Yes, in her own name. And she had a buyer lined up. She was going to wholesale them to the buyer. She got a couple extensions from the seller because of the fact that the buyer had actually had money out on other deals Mm. that he's waiting to get his money back in on so he could fund this deal. Well, ultimately the buyer can't do it. So she has to walk away. And I think she had about 2,500 down or 5,000 down on these three deals. Well, the seller had negotiated an extension with his lender because he was behind on the note. And the seller had granted this, but then he didn't close on a certain date. And so then they foreclosed. And so the seller turned around and sued her. Now, this person had never done a real estate deal before. And I don't think she's done a real estate deal since because of that lawsuit. And I remember her calling me up saying, what do I do now? She sent me the actual letter. I've shown this letter sometimes in my events that she received from the law firm and the law firm laid it all out. I mean, they put all the law in there stating that we can go after you for more than just your earnest money. So if you think that that's where this stops, it does not. And here's the law that supports it. You've harmed our seller client. Therefore, we're going to hold you responsible. That could have been easily rectified. If you just made that simple investment, set up your offer-making LLC or corporate, whatever it's gotta be, make all your offers in there and put and or designated entity. That's what I do. Now, sometimes there's some drawbacks to doing that. I remember last year I was trying to buy five acres and it'd been on the market for quite a few years. And an older person owned this property. And I went at it like that. And a realtor that I was working with, Clint, you shouldn't do it this way. And I, you know, I was like, what are you talking about? I invest all the time. This is exactly how I do things. Yeah, I didn't get the deal because the older person is he kind of know who the seller is personality-wise. Said, oh, that's just some fancy rich investor trying to steal my land, is what he told him. Would not deal with me. Yeah.
1: Anyhow, that's how I think you should approach it. They're protected. You, that makes a lot of sense because if you make the offer in that designated entity and then they sue the designated entity that... There's no assets. It's, there's, there's, there's nothing there. It's inside liability, not outside liability. That's where your client got hosed is personally, she got screwed. She probably got a judgment against her most likely. Oh, and,
0: absolutely. Yeah. And it was a Thanks. default because she couldn't afford to hire an attorney. Oh.
1: So now keep in mind though,
0: when I was saying create this entity, it doesn't mean just set up the entity and don't open up a bank account. And I mean, no, all your wholesale money would run through that entity as well, or would go? you would say you kick it off to another entity to close in and then kick that over. So that entity has to be conducting some business. A lot of what I do now, my own flipping side with real estate is I actually, I've talked about this where you buy property in a separate LLC. I don't flip properties anymore. I flip LLCs. In fact, my buyers tend to prefer it that way because they're investors. I don't flip to homeowners. When they buy it, they're buying the LLC. Many times, you know, I'll try to have a tenant in place already. And if I can get the utilities in the name of the LLC, all that'll be set up. So it's just like plug and play. They step in, they got the company, they got the asset protection, they got everything they're looking for. So that's another way to approach your plan.
1: Yeah, it's like a turnkey system. And I have have friends in New York where I'm originally from. And there's the thing with short sales where you can't assign a short sale, but you can sell the LLC. So Mm -hmm. that's what they do with that. That's a little ninja trick. My buddy in Long Island back home taught me about that one. And he's made probably at least a million dollars in profit doing that. Just lock the short sale up, sell the LLC, not the actual property. And there you go. There's always a way around it if you really know what you're doing. So Clint, man, you got a lot of knowledge in you. So before we wrap up for the day, you obviously are very involved in the legal side of the real estate business. You know, what is your investing besides flipping? I know you're big on the rental properties. You know, what type of properties do you like to do? Are you a single family guy? Are you a multi guy? Do you like mobile home parks? Like what is kind of your repertoire, your, your appetite for properties looking like nowadays? Cause you got a lot of experience.
0: My appetite right now is for any deal because the deal flow. <laughs> yeah, it's tough, man. It is tough. So a lot of what we do is uh, single family. I mean, we have multifamily that I'm trying to stabilize and there's quite a bit of value add that needs to be done to it. It's a bad oh, yeah. buy, but I'm finding, you know, my mobiles, I'm bringing in art, bring in manufactured, you drop them on onto those pads. I found right now that is a sweet spot because I can pick up, you know, a two, two, maybe sometimes a three, two and a skirted drop hooked everything hooked up about $75,000 if you're buying near where there's a dealership. Yeah. So, so I, I like that. But the single family side is, is majority of our portfolio, but it just, we buy in bulk. And the problem with the sellers when you're buying in bulk right now is they're coming back to me and saying, well, on Zillow, I can get this. Like, dude, Zillow ain't paying you cash within 30
1: days. Yeah, for right? Every property you own, but you go ahead. You go ahead and do it. And a lot of the times I see those sellers, they usually, they, or a lot of these idiot wholesalers tie it up at a number that makes no sense. They'll mm-hmm. drag it through the mud, they'll release the contract, maybe, maybe not get sued. And then they'll come back to the guy who has the deep pockets and say, Hey, I know your prop, your offer wasn't, you know, 30 grand more, but if you can do the original offer, I'll just sell to not have to get, you know, the <laughs> over my eyes. So, you know, we, we see a lot of that, you know, we bail these sellers out of jail when the wholesaler cannot deliver because they have no money and they have no experience. But you got to start somewhere, as they say. So, Clint, man, this has been a fun show. If people want to learn more about you, you got a phenomenal YouTube channel. What is the official name of that YouTube channel? Is it Anderson or is it your personal name? Real Estate Asset Protection. Clint Coons, Real Estate Asset Protection. And then Anderson, what's the best? Is it AndersonBusinessAdvisors.com? Well, why don't you do this? Here's a link. Perfect. ABA.link forward slash...
0: Greg TAP. Boom. Put that in. You go to that link, you can set up a free strategy session with us and we'll break all this down for you. I mean, yeah, we we want clients, but what's more important is we want educated investors. And so the reason why we always offer up a free strategy session, the intent is to show you what is possible. Whether or not you take that information and put it into action so it can benefit you is totally up to you, but at least you know what's possible out there and how By setting up things a certain way, you will definitely receive immediate
1: benefits. 100%. And that's how I became a client. As I listened to all the content, I booked a free call. It was extremely, I mean, that was the kind of call that a normal attorney would charge a thousand an hour for. I got all the information gathered and then we picked a plan out and we we executed on that plan. And I mean, if you're listening to this and you got some value from this, you certainly want to take Clint up on that free call offer because it's super valuable. I've done it myself and I'm a very happy client. So Clint, appreciate you coming on the show today, my friend. This was a lot of fun. I'm looking forward to listening to this one myself and I hope you have a great rest of your day, buddy.
0: Hey, thanks for having me. It was fun.